How are we doing, Connection Point Church? All right, I am glad to see everyone here today. Um, we're going to go ahead, and if you have your phones, you can find connectionpoint.life in your, on your cell phone, and you can go ahead and find all of our sermon notes there. Your sermon, the sermon notes are the second card, so feel free to open up your phones. Feel free to use your phones to follow along. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start with a word of prayer today because my heart is somewhat, uh, I wouldn't say heavy, but burdened on this message, and it's, gonna, it's kind of interesting. I, th- I think once you get into the message, you're going to be like, why is your heart burdened on this message? But it is, and I'll try to explain why as we go into it. So let's go ahead and just open up with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for us being able to gather here today. All of us that have come today with burdens on our heart, carrying in uh, maybe a, a history that we're trying to run away from. Maybe something has happened to us this week or this month or this year, and it's just not going the way we thought it would go. Maybe we're stuck in a place and we're just grasping for straws right now. Or many of us come this morning as if our life is not all together, and we may try to act like it, but we're not here because our life is together, we're here because it is not together. We're here because we need hope. We need the confidence that you are not just there, that you are here. And Lord, I pray today that you will reveal yourself to us, that you will speak through my message, through the music, and through the testimonies today, so that everyone here will hear a message of hope and confidence, and we'll be able to take this into the world, to be able to not only live in victory, but also to proclaim it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, um, it's kind of uh, apropos, so to speak, that uh, we would have a little technical difficulties before we uh, began, because uh, if you weren't here, the, the sound, ha- we had some sound issues. And I just want to point out, first of all, if you're new to this church and uh, difficulties or sound or technical difficulties or problems, uh, if those, you know, if, if you're hesitant to join a church that has problems, this would be the wrong church, because Problems are all over our church. In fact, in the history of uh, Christianity, anytime you see people whose lives are going exactly how they want it to be and people who are in control are usually the people furthest from God, just so you know. Usually the people that God is using is the pe- are, are the people that are being punished. They're being, uh, uh, they're, they're, I mean, if you read the, the, the Bible, you'll see Paul is in shipwrecks. He's getting bitten by snakes. It it's never seems to be going. He's in prison. It never seems to be going his way. And that's when God is moving. And so I want to give us confidence because we also have got news that our, uh, yesterday we have a team in Peru. And our Peru team was supposed to leave Friday night. I got a call uh, Saturday morning from uh, Joey, our worship leader, who uh, is on that trip, that he was still in Dallas, <laughs> and I said, that's not good, and so uh, they were able to make it to Lima last night. They missed their connection to Arequipa, but the exciting thing is we had our partners, uh, Edith was there to meet them at the airport in, um, in Lima, and then our, uh, one of the translators and trainers, Ed, um, uh, uh, Ethel, was able to go on, I forget names when I talk about Peru, uh, was able to go on to Arequipa, and so she was able to gather the translators, and so last night I had translators in Arequipa telling me what was going on, and I had Edith and our Peruvian brothers and sisters uh, just taking care of them, making sure they get where they need to go, and it's just exciting to me to know that 
you know, this small church that when we go on an international mission trip, we've got people all over. We're never, it's never unsafe. It's all, it gives us confidence if, you're, if your family's over there right now of knowing, hey, they're in good hands. But it never goes the way it's supposed to go. And I think that's a mark we need to remember. And, uh, and it just excites me when I get to this church and I see that this church is not me. We can have a great worship uh, uh, music when our worship pastor isn't here. When I'm not here, we still have great sermons. God still moves. And so I just want to remind us in this church that you are the church. This church is us. And that's why sometimes there are problems because us sometimes aren't perfect, okay? And that kind of leads into where we're going with this topic today because this topic today is going to shatter some of your image of the Bible. We're going to talk about how the Bible was translated. And I'm willing to bet that most of us in here are unfamiliar with the history of how the Bible was translated, and this is a dangerous thing. I was uh, kind of thinking about this, and uh, the best way I thought to start it off would be with a Star Wars illustration, okay? And so there's a movie called Star Wars that came out in the 70s, if you didn't know this, okay? And it starts off with a robot called a droid. Thank you very much for those that are going to follow this illustration. And this droid starts off with information, it's got secret plans, and it starts off, uh, they're trying to protect and find, some people are trying to find the droid, some people are trying to protect the droid, and this information in this droid is really important. And in fact, there's a, a plot device, a literary device called a MacGuffin, and that is what R2-D2 is. It's just, if R2-D2 isn't there, if the plans aren't there, the story never gets going. And so for... 20, 30 years I watched Star Wars, and you just kind of have to kind of care about R2-D2 to get into the movie at all. But then a few years ago, they put out a movie called Rogue One. Now, we're going deep into the Star Wars universe, I understand, but here's what Rogue One was about. Rogue One was about how the plans got into R2-D2. And if you are a Star Wars buff, you might not have needed this, but once you saw this movie Rogue One, and you understood how many people died and willingly gave their life so that R2-D2 could have this little microchip, all of a sudden the movie Star Wars kind of changes. You understand this is a big deal. A lot of work took to get this little robot where he is when the movie Star Wars begins. That's why I would say if you're going to start your Star Wars experience, start with Rogue One and then Episode Four. but that's neither here nor there. I say that simply because I find this topic of translation to be kind of the MacGuffin of our story as Christianity, that if you don't understand the process of how we get God's Word, then there are, there are some problems that will arise. Two days ago, I, I performed an internment service or a funeral service, and I used the, the Word of God. I used John 14, 14. Jesus says, uh, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And he says, if it, if it weren't true, I wouldn't tell you this. And then he says, uh, if I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, and I will bring you to where I am. And his disciples said, how will we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, at the same time, uh, in India, I got a video from uh, our, our partner in India, who's uh, Samson Mall, he's starting a lot of churches, and he performed a, 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 um, a funeral this past week. And he also used the Bible to encourage, but he didn't do it in English. He did it 
in the, the native language, which isn't Hindi, it's, it's actually a dialect just spoken in that region. And he was able to translate the Bible and give the same encouragement, the same hope through this translation. And so it's powerful if we're going to call on the name of God to understand how we got it in our language. Can we trust it in our language? Is it really something that, that God has inspired and brought to us, or is it just something that we created that man has manipulated? Because some of us grew up in church, and whether you realize it or not, what you, realize, what you really were taught was that the Bible is a magical book that fell from heaven, that I can't question it. And sometimes you, you grew up in a family that had a big old Bible. Anybody have a big old Bible that's set, and uh, you weren't allowed to set drinks on it, right? But you also never opened it, right? It's just there. And that was kind of what the Bible was. But it was holy. You know, don't touch it because it's holy. Don't open it. Don't read from it. You might hurt it because it's holy. And some of us grew up with this kind of atmosphere that don't question it. It says this. It says that. And, and to this day, you know, I, I fight against this. I, I have a tattoo. And I, I, I always get people, well, the Bible says no tattoos. And we, that's why I preach on it. And I try to make sure we understand Listen, you can't, you have to understand a lot more about the Bible than just it's this magic book that fell from heaven. You'll never get what it's trying to tell you. You'll miss so much if you just look at the Bible that way. And there's another narrative that sometimes flows. And that is that the Bible has been mistranslated, mis misquoted. It's been under the control of certain people. And because of that, they were trying to keep people under their authority. They were trying to make sure that some people were included, some people were excluded. And there are some people that never could trust Jesus because they didn't trust the translation of the Bible. In fact, you have people in your life, whether you know it or not, that would say, you know what, the Bible was written by men. I can't trust it. The Bible has nothing to do with the Word of God. God didn't write it. Men wrote it. It's got errors all over it. So today we're going to investigate this, and I just want to let you know it might be a wild ride for some of you because I promise you some of these things at first seem shocking, okay? So I want to start off just with uh, going through uh, um, is the Bible even meant to be translated? And this is something that you may think, of course it is. How else would we read it? But I want you to understand this has been a question that's been asked a lot, and this is also something that uh, that you may, in your the back of your mind, say, well, you know, if I could read it in Hebrew, then I could re read the real Bible. If I could read it in Greek, I'd re I could read the real Bible, okay? And so, uh, it, it's an important question to, to ask. Now, in the, the year 1382, there was a man named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe did something really, really crazy. He translated the Bible from Latin into English. Now, understand, though, the way languages spread our direction from Jerusalem and Rome is it was first of all everyone was speaking Greek and then everyone was speaking Latin and then everyone was speaking English and so when the translations go that way it's because that's the way the, the languages went okay and so he makes the decision hey there's a lot of people around here that are speaking English now I'm going to translate it from Latin to English and this is what the Catholic Church responded with this was their official response as a result the gospel has become common and open to laymen, and get this, and even women that can read. The pearl of the gospel has become scattered abroad and trodden underfoot by swine. The response of the church when 
the, the Vulgate, which was the Latin, the, the most accepted Latin translation, was, was translated by good Christians. There were a lot of people that were trying to get this in the, in the hands, and Wycliffe, that was the response he received. Uh, uh, about a century later, a little more than a century later, there's a man, William Tyndale, and he starts off just to kind of give you a glimpse of who he was. He goes up to, he's having a conversation with a priest, and he says to the priest, if God allows me to live, I'll make sure that a boy driving a plow knows more about the scriptures than you do. Now, for his rebellious attitude of the scriptures, he was tied to a stake, he was strangled, and he was burned at the stake. And his last words were, looking into heaven, he said, Oh God, please open the eyes of the king of England. His only desire was that the scriptures could be taken to the people. And in fact, it was four years after Tyndale's death that the king of England decided we're going to translate this into English. And so this question of can it be, is it, is it okay to translate the Bible, is one that people have, have had dire consequences for. But it's also an ancient question because uh, it, it, the first time we see this come up is actually hundreds of years before Christ. You have uh, what we call the second exile. We had several times where the Jews were in Israel that a, a nation would come in and take them out of Israel in order to control them. And one of them was a Babylonian exile. So they came in and they took most of the Jewish leaders, they take them out, and they take them to Babylon. And what happens is, over a, a, force, a course of a few generations, the, the Jewish scriptures, which are staying in Jerusalem, and they're written in Hebrew, but you have all of the Jews that are now in Babylon, and they, they forget how to speak Hebrew. And they begin to speak these other Babylonian languages, so they come back and... And if you read the book of Nehemiah, you see how they get to come back. Xerxes says you can come back. And they come back and they find the, the, the book of the law, the Torah. And the th interesting thing is, is they can't read it. Because they no longer speak Hebrew. And this is what Nehemiah does. Actually, this was Ezra was the priest that did this. It says that he took the book, and this is in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, and he read the law of God clearly and gave the sense. That is, he translated it. He gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So even before Jesus, hundreds of years, there was this idea that we're going to get the Word of God into the dialect of the people. Now, when the church started, the, the, the main scriptures of the Old Testament scriptures were um, in Greek. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's interesting. The very first sermon that was ever preached in the church happened in a place at a place called Pentecost. It was in Jerusalem, and, and it was a time called Pentecost. And Paul, uh, Peter gets up to preach. He starts preaching, and this is what happens. This is in Acts chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. It says, At the sound, a multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not those who speak Galileans, those Greek-speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? language. And so one of the things I want us to be clear is that God has always intended for you to have a Bible in your language. My burden of preaching this is that you understand God's intention is that you can have a Bible and you read your Bible. He wants, doesn't want it on the, on the coffee table. He wants it in your hand every day so that he can speak to you. In fact, right now, there are over 1.8 billion people who cannot read the Bible in their own native language. It is still something that Christianity is working to solve. So I want to recap where we've gone in this series. If this is your first time, you can get caught up in just a few moments. Uh, 
First thing we, we talked about was that the Bible is not just a book, it's a collection of writings. And we need to understand that when we talk about the Bible, it's not one book. It's a collection of writings over thousands of years by many different authors. The New Testament was completed before the last disciple died. It was not completed hundreds of years after. Before John, who died around the, world, uh, around the year 100 AD, before he is dead, every book in the New Testament has been written. Most of them were written before the year 70 AD, and the, if you're a Christian, you need to know 70 AD. It is probably the most important date that happened in Christianity besides the year 3033, okay? That's when Jesus died and rose again. But in 70, the temple is sacked. The temple is destroyed, and that changes so much about translations, about the history of Christianity and Judaism, okay? So, by the year 100, we have all the books of the Bible have been written. Um, they're then collected. Each church has different writings. We talked about this last week. And over the next few hundred years, they're collected. And usually they're collected and, and, and decided upon based on the heresies at the time. And you need to go back and listen to last week's message to be a little clear on that. But the main thing we got from last week is that no one ever voted on what books were going to be in the, in the New Testament. No one, there was never a council. Constantine had nothing to do with the formation of the New Testament. And this is a narrative that has been put forth. We watched a clip last week of a narrative that has been put forth about how uh, Constantine and later the Catholic Church tried to control the Bible. This isn't true. There were, bi there were copies all over the place even before Constantine and before they were collected. So that brings us to this for the second question I want us to ask today, and that is, how is the Old Testament translated? How is the Old Testament translated? Well, most scholars would say that the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, were written down probably by the year 600. Now, the latest scholarship pushes that back to actually 1,000 B.C. And what we're learning, not to go too in-depth, is that the Hebrew language is about 1,000 years before Christ, which means that when Abraham and Moses are walking around, they're not speaking Hebrew, which is interesting. That, that dialect did not actually uh, exist then, but when it did, when it was written down, it was about a thousand. So the earliest it, the Bible could have been written in Hebrew would have been a thousand BC. Okay, and remember we talked again two weeks ago. We talked about uh, oral, tran or oral transmission, about how the, the even to this day there are Jewish uh, lines that prefer oral translations of the Bible as opposed to written translations, okay? Now, about 400-ish, all but before Christ, all the books of the Old Testament have been written, okay? All of the prophets have written down whatever they're, they're writing, and it's all pretty much complete, and it's pretty much in Jerusalem. All of the, of the texts are in Jerusalem. And life begins to happen, there's persecution begins to happen, and so people begin to move out of Jerusalem, and you have people going all over. You have a lot of people going up to Egypt this time, which, by the way, they would actually go east to Egypt uh, from Israel, but they'll go to Egypt, to Alexandria, is a big place where a lot of people are going. You have some people going up to Greece. You have people, some people that are moving out, and then you have these little sects. We might even call them cults that uh, think the world is ending, and because there's a lot of turmoil, you have Ptolemy, you have uh, the Greek Empire, all these things going on in the world in that area. So people are like, 
the sky is falling. This is the end of the world. Have, we ever th- have you ever thought this is the end of the world? Well, that is a narrative that's been going on a long time. So what people would do is groups of people would go and hide. And you have one group of people called the Essenes, and they go to the Dead Sea, and there are caves. And when we went, in, uh, John and I went in January, I was shocked at how many caves. They're everywhere, especially around the Dead Sea. And so one group goes to the Dead Sea. There's a group called Samaritans you may have heard of. They go up into what's the West Bank, and they're still there to this day. And they, they go to these places. Some go to, to Greece and all this. And when they go, what do they do? They take a copy of the Hebrew Bible with them. Now, these copies are sometimes from a scribe whose job was to do this, but sometimes it's a guy who says, you know what, I want to go here, and I'm going to write down, and it's just an average guy who will write down this Bible and take a scroll with him. And so, after the year 400, we get these, the, the Old Testament begins to spread out a little bit, and it's all in Hebrew, but as you can probably figure out, it gets to Greece, it gets to Egypt, and people don't speak Hebrew. And so, and about the year, uh, in, the, in the 200s before Christ, uh, maybe 160 is what most people say is when it's finished, the first translation of the Bible happens, um, of the Old Testament happens, and it's from Hebrew to Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. Septuagint means 70, and that's simply because there is a, a letter that was written um, we don't know if this letter is right or not, but it talks, it tells a story about how 70 Jewish scribes translated the Hebrew into the Greek and that it was exactly, each copy was exactly the same, okay? So, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, and I don't think you have to believe it's true or not, but the, but the interesting thing that I think you need to know is that when Jesus is walking around on the earth, the copy of the Bible that he, when he talks about the scripture, or when Paul or somebody talks about the scriptures, they're talking about the Greek Septuagint. Most of them are not reading the Hebrew, they are reading this Greek, and this is, this is important. And, and I'll give you just one example of why this is important. When they make this translation, they actually make some decisions. Anytime you translate something, you have to make some decisions. And so Isaiah 7.14 Isaiah 7.14 talks about a young woman will be with child. And in Hebrew, it's just this vague word that can mean a lot of different things. But when it gets to this translation of the Septuagint, which all the New Testament writers read, they they translate this word woman into virgin. And so when we get this, this prophecy that's quoted in the New Testament, they're quoting the Greek version, which clarifies and actually gives us better insight that we know 160 years, at least, probably about 200 to 300 years before, there was a belief that a virgin would be with child. And that's very interesting because when you, you, you think about how God used this translation right before Jesus came to kind of clarify, this is, this is how it's going to happen. But you can see God moving through the translation. So, we go on, and for the next few hundred years, you have the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Septuagint. I could tell y'all are enthralled. It's going to get even better than this, because better than that. So just stay, hang with me, okay? Now, when we get to uh, about year 500, you have the Hebrew Bible. But the, here's something interesting about the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible that they have, all up until the year 500, has no vowels and no accents. And you think, well, I don't know Hebrew. That's probably not a big deal. No, it's the same as if you were reading English and I gave you a copy of the Bible with no accents and no vowels. You would be like, this doesn't say Jesus. It says Jesus. You know what I mean? It would be very, very hard uh, to read. And by the way, the letter J didn't exist until 500 years ago. 
Do you know what Jesus' real name is? Yeshua. Right. Joshua. Yeshua. So, uh, you don't need to know that either. I just threw that in there. Um, but... About the year 500, 900, okay, this, uh, this group of Jewish scribes comes, and, they, and they, they create what's called the Masoretic text. Masoret is a word from Hebrew that means accent or, or uh, pronunciation. And, and they actually go in, they translate the Hebrew text, but they add in the vowels and they add in the accents so that you can actually take it and read it and not have to know someone who has memorized it. Because up to this point... They would have this text, but they also had memorized it, so it was just kind of a guide. It wasn't that big of a, a deal to, to not have the vowels in, because they were reciting it. But then the Masoretes come and say, you probably ought to write this down. We don't know if people are getting smarter or dumber, so let's go ahead and err on the side of caution. Thank goodness, right? Amen? Okay, maybe not. Um, so anyway, when we get the Old Testament... By the time, the main thing I want you to understand is by the time Jesus is there, there are two main copies. There's the Old Testament, uh, or the Hebrew Old Testament, which is the one that most Jewish uh, people that speak Hebrew would say, that's, that's the Bible. But there's also the Septuagint that has a huge influence, not just on Christianity, but on Judaism as well, because of the translation. A lot of people would use the Septuagint to, to better understand the Hebrew. Now... What's interesting is that uh, as we go along with this, about, uh, for the longest time, the Masoretic text is, is what everyone would use. But then in 1947, the greatest discovery of the 20th century occurred, which is, does anyone know? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember that group that fled to uh, the, the caves in, uh, before Jesus was around? They actually took a lot of scriptures with them. And when a, a, a Bedouin shepherd, who's just a, a basically a, a shepherd who lives in the region, and they were all still all over the region, you can still go see them just with their, with their sheep, was, was bored one day, throws a rock up into one of these caves, and this cave was very high, and the, the rock didn't just go into the cave, it also went down into a cave, and he hears this clink, and he hears this clay pot shatter is what it was, and they go and they find that there are literally... Uh, there are tons uh, of these, or not literally tons, there are tons of these, metaphorically tons, of, uh, of, these, of these different scriptures. And they're not all Bible texts, they're just the library of this community. And they find, for example, an Isaiah scroll, the most famous of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can go on Google sometime, not now, uh, but if you uh, want to work on your Hebrew, go search Isaiah scroll, zoom in. And you can actually zoom in and see this scroll, what they found. And the interesting thing about this is that, it, that, that this scroll is from 200 B.C. 200 years before Christ, this scroll is the text. And so they were able to take this text of the Old Testament and compare it to the Masoretic text. And they could see, is it changed? And in some places it had changed. It, it was different. And they were able to say, well, why did they add this? Why, did the, why is this here? And sometimes it was something that was being clarified. Um, but they were able to look and see. And what's interesting about that Isaiah scroll is that most scrolls last anywhere from 400 to 500 years. And so there is a good chance, a lot of scholars think that that scroll, the Isaiah scroll, which, by the way, sometimes I've seen it. It, it, it comes around sometimes and we'll, we'll go into museums. It was actually, most, a lot of scholars at least think it was the first copy from the original one that Isaiah himself wrote, or Baruch as we learned two weeks ago, actually wrote down 
So it's a very, very important find. But it also gives us confidence of knowing what we're reading, we can go back within just a few hundred years, and we know that it's the same text they were using in the Old Testament. All right, so let's get to the New Testament, okay? The New Testament, if you think the wild, it was wild in the Old Testament, wait till you get to the New Testament. This is where Christians kind of lose, sometimes lose their perspective. Sometimes we think we've got this one line of translation, but that's not what happened. What had happened was... We had this, this Greek to Latin to English uh, conversion of language going on, and each time people would go somewhere, and they would go to one of these churches that we talked about last time. There would be a little church uh, that was underground, and remember, it's illegal to be a Christian. You can't walk around with this. And so you would go into this church, and you'd be like, you know what? You might travel hundreds of miles to go to this little church knowing they've got a copy of Isaiah or they've got a copy of one of Mark's letters or they've got a copy of the Gospel of Luke. And you'd go in there and you'd say, hey, can, can I spend just a day copying this so I can take it back to my house church? And so you'd have some Joe Schmo like me or you walk into this church and as fast as he can at night, he would copy this thing down and he would take it back to his place. How many copies are what we would call variants? So here are two terms you need to know. The autograph is the one that Paul actually wrote or that Matthew actually wrote. The autographs, don't, we don't have any of them, okay? They only last usually about 40 or 50 years, if maybe a few uh, hundred if, if we're lucky. But the autographs are not there. We don't have the actual ones, but we've got these copies. Because what was happening was people were coming and then they were going and they were taking the word of God with them. How many variants, in other words, little spelling mistakes, do you think happened in these copies? The first question is, how many copies went out? And I'll tell you, over 20,000 copies have been found from, that have been traced. Some of them will be up in Greece, and then you'll see just an explosion. You'll get one copy, get to Greece, and then an explosion. There'll be a lot of copies around Greece, and, and you can see this guy misspelled this, and then you see a strand of copies that all have a little misspelling. And then sometimes you'll have a word that's flipped around, Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, or something like that, and you'll see there's a thread here that goes that way. There are over half a million variants when we take all of these uh, texts. So when we think about our translations, some of you are like, well, this doesn't sound like a good thing because I thought there was one translation and it went up the whole way and it was exactly what we have. But I'm going to tell you it's better than that because here's the problem with that. If you do that, if you have only one copy, what you get is the Book of Mormon. What you get is the book that fell from heaven and what you get is a book that can be controlled. And that's why when you read the Book of Mormon, you will not see that they used to consider black people a curse by the mark of Cain because they have taken that out of the Bible. And it is no longer there, but it was there. But because it was under the control of one church, one people, it was under, it was, it's able to be manipulated, it's able to be changed at any time. They still will change it. So what we have, remember, we didn't have any, we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of these little variants all over. And yes, they have little mistakes. And this actually turns out to be a good thing because one person can't claim, hey, I got all the knowledge. I got it right here. You can say, no, I got, I got a copy over here that's pretty much true. Now, I'm going to play a little game with you, okay? First of all, I want to show on the screen. You can see here are all the different, uh, right now, this is a rough estimate of, of the number of manuscripts we have. Now, 
going to play a little game with you. How can we know which is correct? And this is how we get our translations. We're going to play a game called textual criticism. Yay. Okay. Let's put this uh, next slide up, okay? Now, I'm going to put a slide up here, and it's got five different variants, okay? And there are spelling mistakes, and there's only one that's correct, okay? And let's say we all together had to decide which is the correct statement. Okay, would how many of us would say, I think A was the original, A is the correct one? And if you don't want, I don't care. How many of you would say B is the correct one? Okay, some bold people, okay? What about uh, C, the bird red? Okay, some of us say that might be it. Okay, D, the reddish bird. Huh. And E, no one's going to, probably not E, okay? But you can see that, that when you look at it, you see the red bird, deer. We know that that's probably not right. First of all, we know it's a misspelling of the word bird, most likely, right? But we also can look at the other five and we are, the other four, and we can say, well, the word is supposed to be bird. It, it's spelled correctly in every other variant that we have. You can look at the word order, and you can see, you know what? Or actually, when you look at the capitalization, you can say we should, probably shouldn't capitalize these. These aren't. This isn't the first name because none of the other ones have this as a proper name, and so that's not it. And then you get to the 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 number number C, letter C, and you say the bird red. Well, you can tell it's out of order because you can look at the other ones and you can see which one is right. But then you can get down here and you can see the reddish bird. Well. It didn't change the meaning, but that's probably not right either. And then you can see somebody just added on something in E just to maybe clarify. Maybe there were a lot of birds, and they were wanting to be real specific, trying to be helpful. These are the type of variants when we get to the New Testament. What, here's the first principle of textual criticism I want you to see. The more manuscripts, the clearer we are when it comes to translations. The more manuscripts, the more variants the clearer the message becomes. And this is an important thing. It's hard to explain on two seconds of, of notice, but we want this, actually. We want a lot of, of text and we, because we want to be able to make sure no one changed it, and we want to be able to make sure that we have enough that we can see, okay, this is true, but this is probably an addition. So let's go. I'm going to look at three examples as fast as I can, okay? First example is Mark. If you have a Bible, turn there. It's Mark 16 through 9 through 20. I'm not going to read this, okay? You'll notice I've never preached out of Mark 16, 9 through 20 because in, every, um, mo in almost every translation that you'll see, before you get to Mark 9, uh, 16, 9 through 20, there is a note that says this is not found in early manuscripts. This is the text that tells us that Christians, when, uh, when, that our true Christians are going to be able to handle serpents. This is why if you go to a church that handles serpents, Understand, they are reading from something that was added to the Bible years after. In fact, we know it was hundreds of years after. This is a problem. You could say, well, why is it in my Bible? It's clearly said in your Bible. They found copies that had it in it, but they also have earlier copies that don't have it in it. And so they know it was added, okay? It's not, no one's trying to fool you, but just know that that's why I don't preach. That's why we don't handle snakes, among other reasons. Another one, problem number two, that uh, example, John chapter 5. This is my one of my favorite ones. This is an example that we'll see. And by the way, a lot of them are misspellings, but this is, this is one that uh, somebody, in, if you have, who has a paper Bible, anyone? Look at John chapter 5, verse 4. I'm going to read to you the way it shows in the ESV, and we'll have this on the screen. In the ESV, this is what it, ha what it says. This is verse 3. 
and these days, and these, uh, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man, this is verse 5, was there who had, not, who had been invalid for 38 years. And you'll notice, in most translations, they skip verse 4. Well, if you go to the King James, you can actually find verse 4. This is what verse 4 says. For an angel went down at a certain season in the pool and would trouble the water, so that whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in, it was made whole of whatsoever the disease he had. So what's happened here? This is the reason that I will actually preach and, and, and read verse 4, because somebody who was a scribe, probably taking this to his church, says, that's weird. Why did he want to get into the water so bad? And then he explains, at that time, there's a belief about an angel stirring the water. Was it an actual angel stirring the water? It's not part of the, the Bible, so I would say that's, you don't have to believe that. But you can at least use verse 4 to understand, hey, at the time, this is what people thought. So it's just somebody thought, I'm going to add this in. But we can clearly look at the variants and see this isn't supposed to be in there. Does that make sense? Okay, no, I hope this doesn't trouble you. I hope this gives you comfort that... When you read the Bible, if you want to look into the notes, you can find out what's textual, what the text actually says, and you can be confident that the decisions being made are being made uh, because that is the consensus. Now, the last one we're going to show you is the biggest problem, the, the most dangerous one of all of them. If this one concerns you, uh, if you can get by this one without being overly concerned, we'll be able to read the Bible with confidence. Okay, this is John chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to read it in the ESV, I think, first. Yeah, King James first, okay? King James says this, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which in him is the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, what I want you to focus on is only begotten Son. That's how King James translates this, okay? Now, the ESV translates this from a different variant because we do not know which one is the right one. The variant of the ESV says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the variant, one of them translates it the word son, clearly talking about Jesus. And the other one translates it God, clearly talking about Jesus. That's the most dangerous, the biggest error, the most destructive error we have is that one right there. Some will just translate this uh, the only one without even using the word God or son. And all of them are correct. But what I want you to see about the New Testament is, even though there's not one thread, that we have confidence. In fact, the problem with the New Testament isn't that we only have 90% of the Bible, it's that we have 103% of the Bible. But scholars through a process called textual criticisms have actually been able to see this is the version that we have the most confidence in. And when we have a translation, you can trust it, and they're very open with it. In fact, on your connectionpoint.life, I've put in uh, the Net Bible notes. You can go in, and they actually tell you why they made the decisions that they've made. The big idea is this. We know through textual criticism that not, this is uh, the, the consensus among all scholars, biblical and secular, is that we have confidence in 98.5% of the Bible. Other scholars say it's 99.5% of the Bible we know is exactly what the original authors intended. But even as Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is not a believer, will, uh, has said, there is not one Christian doctrine that is in jeopardy, that has been changed or manipulated through the process of translation. 
this is what I want us to know. I want us to know that, listen, the idea that there's only one thread that might, that the Bible pulled from heaven, that might be destructive for you. But what I want you to see is something more beautiful, that God protected us against manipulation and corruption of the text by actually giving us little small errors and tweaks. And I thought, man, that's the way our church works. That's the way our mission trips work. That's the way our lives work. Is all these things that we think are errors, we think are mistakes, that we think, why, why would he do this? How could this, I must be doing something wrong. And we look at the grand picture and then we get this. That's how we have confidence that we know God is up to something. I want to leave us with this, okay? The Bible is not a magical book. If you, if you think that way, you'll miss the beauty and the pain of what was written. It is not a love letter just to you. It was written through people's experience and pain, and it's, it speaks to us, yes, but it was not just to you. It's to all of us. It's not a blueprint for your life. It is not, this is how you should live life. In fact, most of the Bible is experience. You should probably avoid people who made a ton of mistakes. Learn from them. I'm going to close just by reading a, a text uh, from the um, Apostle Paul. And the reason I want to read this is because this is the very last letter he wrote. This is first or Second Timothy. He's on death row. And... When you read this, not from this is a book that fell from heaven, but when you read this from a man who's sitting on death row, he doesn't have a blanket, he doesn't have books, he's bored and he's lonely and all his friends have deserted him. And he writes this letter to his one disciple he knows I can count on. You'll see the beauty of the Christian walk. I'm going to read quite a bit, I'll read quickly, but I want you to at least try to get in that experience and understand what the Bible really is. This is 2 Timothy verse uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says, You, Timothy, however, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, the persecutions I've endured. Yet all of them, the Lord has rescued me. And indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And while evil and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, as for you, though, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing that from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been made acquainted with the sacred writings, that is, the Bible, you are able to make wise, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God in Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living, and the dead, by his appearing and, uh, and his kingdom, preach the word every season, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete with patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching having an itching of their ears that will accumulate them as teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth. They will wander into myths. But as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. My time of departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth laid up for me, and there's a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to those who have loved his appearing. And to stop there, that would sound like, man, that's a great word. But then listen to how Paul ends this. Do your best to come to me soon. 
Demas, in love with this world, has deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is with me. Mark, get Mark and bring him to, with you, for he's useful for me. Tychus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring that cloak that I left at Carpus in Troas. And the books, and above all the parchments, that's his scriptures. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. He probably burned his books. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. He is strongly opposed to our message. In my defense, no one came to stand with me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles may hear it. That is, all the Greek speakers that don't speak Hebrew. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord rescued me from evil and deed and brought me uh, safely into the heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus, Erastus at Corinth, who I left it with Trophimus, who was ill. Do your best to come before winter. He needs his coat. He's cold. Eusebius will send greetings to you as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all their brothers. The Lord be with you. Great grace be with spirit. Remember, it's not just that God gave us a book. He gave us the witness of others. And that today continues to move us forward. The, the word of God is alive and living, not just in his Bible, but in his believers. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this message. I pray that we have been able to walk out of here with a faith more encouraging than we walked in. And Lord, as we wrestle with some of these uh, facts, Lord, I pray that you'll just begin to show us confidence in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.